Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Fisher Investments Market Insights Podcast, where we discuss our firm's latest thinking on global capital markets and world events. My name is Nar Srinivas, and I'm a Corporate Communications Group Manager here at the firm, and I'm joined today by Content Group Manager Todd Blyman. Hi, Naj. Thanks for having me. Todd, thanks for being here. So, Todd, your group manages all of the content that the firm puts out. Your group takes a look at what is going on in the major news media, what's going on in the world, what are all, a lot of our clients are reading and talking about, and obviously that's a pretty big task. So just maybe at a high level, can you describe what your team does and, and how they go about doing it? Sure. Real briefly, you're right. It is our task to monitor media and try to come up with what clients are going to be thinking about and talking about before maybe they're thinking and talking about it. And so to do that, we monitor a wide array of media from around the world. We cover major mainstream news organizations like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. We cover five different newspapers from Britain, including The Guardian, The Telegraph, and The Independent. We cover papers from Australia and Korea and Japan. That's in the mainstream sort of traditional media bucket. Then we also cover a lot of less traditional media like blogs and social media, industry publications, that sort of stuff, which run the gamut really of highbrow economist all the way down through market pundit or maybe even just competing money manager so that we can get a wide array of the different ideas that could be influencing our clients. So you guys are, you could say, the experts at reading the major and minor financial news media and sifting through what's the news from, say, the noise that a lot of clients and prospective clients might hear. Yeah, that's, that's our wheelhouse, and it's what we do every single day. So obviously in the last 20 years, though, the nature of the news media has changed, and, and that's really the topic of this podcast, how to read the major financial news media because it's changed so much. Can you talk a little bit about what's changed and how it's changed and how people perceive things today that's different than, say, 30 years ago? Sure. If you went back 30 years and looked at what major media looked like, you had a lot fewer offerings. Um, It was uh, much more dominated by the traditional media. And these days, with the advent of the internet and 24-hour cable news and uh, talk radio and all those sorts of things, consumers and investors have just an enormous array of different places they can look to to get information. So that's basically put the media into a, a cutthroat competition with one another for eyeballs and attention and to try to grab listeners or uh, readers or viewers from their competitors. The end result of that is you have a sensationalized media, and I don't want to overplay that. The media has always been sensationalized, if you know anything about the, the, the uh, Spanish-American if it, war. If it bleeds, it leads, <laughs> If right? it bleeds, it leads, yeah, and that's always been true. These days, what you find is that there's a lot more opinion bleeding into front-page news. There's a lot more entertainment bleeding into what was ordinarily the domain of straightforward reporting. The impact I find on readers and consumers of media is it's a lot harder just to get basic facts. It's a lot harder to get down to the who, what, when, where, why, and how of a story as opposed to the adjectives and the colorful uh, verbs that a writer might use to tell a story and paint a picture. Mm -hmm. And and even if those 
news stories are out there that are just the facts, it's probably very easy for readers or viewers to miss them amidst all the noise of those much, much more sensationalized headlines to grab people's attention, to appeal to that fear and greed. You're absolutely correct. I mean, you can still find those basic stories, but they're usually buried. One example, uh, the New York Times has a little section in the top right of their website where you can scroll through a bunch of articles that are being provided from Reuters and, and so forth, other news organizations. And many of those early in the day are your bare bones news stories. They, are, they, are, they really read like something you might have seen in the back pages of a newspaper 15, 20, 30 years ago. But nowadays, if you look on the main page of the website, you'll never even see it. Mm -hmm. If you look in the, the print version of the paper, you're definitely not going to see it. You're going to see something that's been a lot more dressed up. It's been um, much more machined and processed by uh, a news staff and, and editorial staff to make it more appealing to a reader's eyeball and what, what these news organizations think their audience wants to see today. Mm -hmm. So you alluded to something a moment ago, and I want to come back to that, and that's, that's the fact that barriers to entry have fallen. Now to be a reputable news source, or a news source generally, where people are picking up information, you can have as little as a Twitter handle or a blog, both of which are free. Can you talk about how that's influenced investor behavior and how investors can really overcome those? Yeah, I, I think this is perhaps the biggest double-edged sword of our time. <laughs> I mean, uh, for, at least from a media perspective. So there are basically no barriers to entry. You can find blogs out there that are great and are written by you know, well-schooled professionals in the industry. If you want to read something about academic economics, you can find plenty of guys out there with Nobel Prizes who run blogs and analyze news through the lens of their expertise. But at the same time, you can find a lot of people with a lot of opinions and not a lot of credentials, mm -hmm. or a lot of opinions and not a lot of facts. In that regard, as a reader of those sources, what one has to do is really approach them skeptically, think about who's providing the opinion, and can you even identify who's providing the opinion? In some cases, these are anonymous blogs altogether. How much weight would you put on an anonymous opinion when you didn't know anything about the background of them? But in financial media, there are a number of websites out there that are actually influencing mainstream media that are just that. They're anonymous blogs. Nobody knows who they are. Mm -hmm. But they initiate the narratives that we later see pop up in mainstream media. One example is, is a company called Zero Hedge. Nobody knows who these guys are. They claim to be industry professionals, but it's an anonymous blog. Mm -hmm. And they come out each day and they, they offer up a series of narratives and they occasionally bleed over into what later gets reported in the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal or what have you. It's a difficult time to be a consumer of financial media. I think some would say it's a difficult time to be a consumer of any media, mm -hmm. but you know, having, having read and analyzed media every day for the last you know, better, better part of seven years, I can tell you it's, it's increasingly commonplace to see what I would have previously referred to as the fringe element of media influencing the core mm -hmm. of media and sort of controlling the narrative from without. 
for long-term investors, you know, who are investing with a specific goal in mind out into the future, they're being bombarded by all of these different things, whether it be in the major news media or on Twitter or, or even in their smartphone. And it strikes me that today your smartphone is also one of your worst enemies because, <laughs> you know, interestingly, it, it, <clears throat> you get an alert when the Dow drops 300 points, but you very rarely get an alert when the Dow is up, say, 100 points seven days in a row or something like that. Right? It just appeals to that fear and greed. So do you have a framework for long-term investors to, to help them read the, the news media today? Yeah, I, I think a lot of people and a lot of advisors would come out and just say, well, just ignore it all. It's all noise and it doesn't matter for you because you're a long-term investor. But let, let's be blunt here. That's unrealistic. Mm-hmm. I mean, in today's world, you, you can't escape media. People talk about it all the time. And um, we have to come up with a better way to approach media than just to say, bury your head in the sand. It doesn't matter. So from my perspective, what what... I think is a good tool for long-term investors to do is approach any news story you're going to read about finance skeptically. I don't expect that every long-term investor has access to a data tool like I do where they can sit there and verify all the facts that a reporter presented. That's, again, not realistic. But if you approach it skeptically and you, and you tune out the adjectives and the color, colorful words, you can find yourself basically dissecting an article down to what are the facts that this article hinges upon. And in reading financial journalism, what I often find is that the facts, a lot of times, will center on things like daily market movement. Now, anybody who's been an investor for longer than a year knows daily market movement just doesn't mean anything. Right. You know, the stories about stocks fell because oil fell, or, or sometimes it's vice versa. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one day stocks fell because oil fell. The next day, oil fell and stocks were up, and that, that was presumed to be causal. Yeah, I mean, it's, right. it's, it's all over the map. You really do have to tune down narratives like that when you're, you're reading through financial media. I think it's crucially important to try to take the emotion out of it. And the emotion is, is most often conveyed through things like adjectives and verbs. So... If somebody says a certain political deadline, let's say the debt ceiling, looms in the future, well, when you read the word looms, mentally delete that and replace it with is scheduled for. Right. It takes a lot of the emotion out of it. And if you read through headlines and, and even mainstream journalism, you're going to find a lot of those emotion words. And I think long-term investors really benefit from, from sort of taking that out of their thinking as they read through financial media. It strikes me that one of the things that you're talking about here is just not taking things for granted, not taking things at face value as they're written, but actively questioning what's written, what the conclusions are, and, and the points that the news media is trying to make after them. Yeah, I think you're right. You always have to beware things like correlation without causation. and. You know, being an active reader of media and asking yourself questions as you're coming through a piece. How did the reporter reach the conclusion that they did? Does their thesis actually hold any water? Um, What are they arguing and what's the evidence that they're offering? You know, as you read through, ask yourself those questions. And when you come to the end, 
if there's no logical sort of um, um, conclusion that you can follow from point A to point B to point C, then you've got to question whether the theory holds any water at all. And most of the time I find in reading through articles that if I ask my, myself enough questions while I'm reading, I can pretty much uh, unpack virtually any media article that I can and get down to the core facts and the core argument and then assess whether it holds any water or not. I mean, and importantly, another thing you've got to consider is, does it have any forward-looking implications at all, or are we talking about something in the past? Mm -hmm. I mean, because obviously an, a, a reporter could come forward with a theory that is completely valid and correct, but it only explains to you what happened over the last six months and doesn't explain to you anything about what's going to happen over the right. next six months. And, and if you believe that markets are efficient discounters of all widely known information, anything that's in a headline today is, is already priced into the markets. And that's true, yeah. And so it's very important to size up, you know, is this really news that's going to impact investments on a forward-looking basis and not just on a backward-looking one? Because by the time reporters in mainstream newspapers are picking up on something and it's made front-page news, chances are stocks are already reflecting that. What are some good tools or what are some good websites or media outlets for investors to pay attention to or to get their news? It's a common client question I get all the time is, well, you seem like you're vilifying all of the major news media outlets. So am I supposed to just turn off CNBC and, and cancel my newspaper subscription? So what are some of the things that, that you and your team turn to? <laughs> you know, I, I, I get this question a lot, too, and, and um, there's no easy answer. Well, there's one easy answer. You can visit our firm's website, marketminder.com, and we'll, we'll help you make sense of the news there. But beyond, you know, sort of self-serving plug plugs, there. <laughs> yeah, beyond plugging the website, I would give the very inconvenient answer that, they're all good and they're all bad. Mm -hmm. And I say that simply because, you know, there is no one source of, of defined information that is factual. Pretty much anywhere you go, you can get some value out of the, the, the news that's being provided to you. Even in the opinion pages, which are very, very straightforward, someone's opinion, you can get value as an investor out of that. It might help you better understand what sentiment looks like across the world. It might help you better interpret future headlines on that subject. It might help you explain a common thesis that you're running into in your own investing. There is big value you can unlock from media, even if it is skewed and biased and, and off the mark from a factual standpoint. So it's, it's much more about you than it is what website you go to. Mm -hmm. The process of actively reading, taking things with a grain of salt, peeling back the onion a little bit to see, well, is there a there there behind this story or behind the conclusion that this particular reporter or this particular story draws on something? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, one of the, the curious things that I've seen over the last five years or so is there have been a number of major restructurings at some big news organizations like the, the, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, because as is fairly well known, traditional media is in a lot of financial trouble. And so they occasionally look to cut costs. And so the writers that you read in the Wall Street Journal one day, you know, a year later will pop up in Bloomberg mm -hmm. and vice versa. Or a writer that you read in The Australian, for instance, which is a big paper down under, will go on loan for a year to the Wall Street Journal. So 
there's such interconnectedness in the players in the industry that it's hard to think that one news organization is going to be a bastion of truth while everybody else is fiction. Mm -hmm. I mean, the reality is they're all equally fictitious and they're all equally factual, and it's up to you as a reader to apply a process that's going to help you get down to something useful. So, Tal, this is one that's slightly outside of what I would define as the traditional mainstream news media, but it's an area where a lot of folks get their information from, and, and, and one that I have many clients ask me about. You know, They'll bring newsletters to meetings, and they'll pass them to me and say, what do you think about this, this newsletter, this financial newsletter that I subscribe to? You've obviously seen a lot of those as well. What are your thoughts on those? Buyer beware is the first thing that I would suggest. That doesn't mean that you're not going to get any value out of them. Like, like I mentioned a moment ago about media, even bad media can provide some value to a reader so long as you approach it skeptically and, and test the theses yourself. I think the very same thing applies to newsletters. The difference here, though, is that you have fewer barriers to entry than you do in mainstream media. So you will get people who have a wide array of backgrounds. Some of them are money managers and they write a newsletter. So there's a little more credibility on that side of the coin. On the other side, you've got people who have nothing to do with the securities industry and hire people based on newspaper ads and pay them 25 bucks per subs, uh, submission. I mean, how much validity would you ascribe if you knew that the person writing your post was doing so in their basement or the, the basement of their parents' house? I don't know, probably not the same validity that you would um, a thesis from someone who's an actively managing money or someone who is a financial journalist with, with access to a lot of uh, well-known people in the industry. Mm -hmm. I think really if you're considering subscribing to a newsletter, before you do so, investigate who's writing it. Find out what their background is. What do they actively do in this industry? Anything? Do they actually manage money or do they just make their money on selling newsletters? Right. And ask yourself if, because there's one question that, that hangs over newsletter writers, in my view. And that question is, if your advice is very profitable and could easily make a big return, why aren't you managing money for people? <laughs> Because the profit scale between selling media of those ideas and managing money is just not close. Right. Realistically, one has to ask, why is this the venue or outlet you've chosen to get your ideas out to the general investing public? Well, Todd, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And thanks to all of you for listening. For more, please visit marketminder.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. The content of this podcast represents the opinions and viewpoints of Fisher Investments and should not be regarded as personal investment advice. No assurances are made we will continue to hold these views, which may change at any time based on new information, analysis, or reconsideration.